0: Welcome back to The Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts on all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation has been a long-awaited discussion with my new friend, Tony Riddle. He had a really interesting last couple of years where he's been breaking all sorts of records particularly with not just ultra marathons, more like cross country voyages by foot, but also barefoot. So a really impressive feat of durability, endurance, mental tenacity. And he's been a student of the mind and the body for all of his life. He's had a really interesting starting point, starting with clubbed feet as a little guy, congenital, came out that way and uh, really unwinding those patterns and now being an absolute record-breaking leader in the space of endurance athleticism. So this conversation was far-reaching, really fun, really fascinating, and uh, we get into the the, the depths of the mind of Tony Riddle. I've got a question for y'all. What would you give to be told exactly what you need to do to optimize your health and wellness? What if it were possible for you to get science-backed nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle recommendations based specifically on your body? What if I told you it was possible to remove all the frustration when it comes to weight loss? You could stop playing the guessing game on what you should and shouldn't be doing and eating, And you could quit wasting money on health foods and supplements that don't actually work. Inside Tracker makes it possible. I just got my own testing done with InsideTracker, where they analyze data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to fitness tracker being like the Fitbit or whatever one that you use. Um, if you choose to use it, I don't personally actually use one. I just do the, the, the blood samples and check in to see how my levels are and what I could use more or less of, which has been very helpful. And It can bring you to an ultra-personalized performance system. Essentially, InsideTracker transforms your body's data into true knowledge, meaningful insights and customized action plans of science-backed nutrition, fitness and lifestyle recommendations. I am super excited to start my plan and you can start yours too by getting 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. All you have to do is head over to insidetracker.com/align. Again, that's 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you go to insidetracker.com/align. That's insighttrackercom slash Align. Okay, let's get to it. This conversation was recorded via Zoom. And uh, the audio is less optimal than I, what I would prefer, typically. I just moved to Austin, Texas, and I'm in process of building a podcast studio. So we're going to go back to all in-person conversations. But this one was recorded remotely, so I apologize for the audio. But the conversation was excellent. Okay, here we go. Back to the Gas with the amazing, the impressive
1: Tony Riddle. Pow! Are you in the same area? I'm in Austin,
0: Texas. And have you been out here?
1: No. I've been to um, Pasadena. Oh, well, that's another
0: state entirely.
1: I'm in Pasadena in Texas. I've been to uh, to see a guy called, he was an absolute genius. He's dead now, unfortunately. His name is Kenny Weldon. And so it's next to Houston, basically. He had this whole language about fiber muscle. He used to call it like fiber muscle, man, this fiber muscle. And you related it then to Nicholas's model of this elasticity and understanding muscles and tendons and how those systems, once you understand external forces, they understand their role within it without our own intervention. You know, it's kind of like, well, actually, if I get my body weight where it should be, then the muscles and tendons kind of understand their role within that mechanism. And what we can often do is try and use inappropriate muscle action, you know, and tension comes in and Uh, we heighten kind of that risk of injury and through boxing it's very very clear to see it like how you transfer your weight from say to throw a right hand your weight drops onto your right foot to throw a left hook you drop your weight back onto your right foot drop the weight from your right hand to your left foot you keep bumping your pivoting your body weight from side to side and then what we do through that model you could see how people could deliver their body weight into their hand rather than using tricep extensions and you know, and trying to use muscle action because you only have so much weight in an arm compared to how much weight is in that mass if you can move it from one state to the next. You know, it's phenomenal
0: work, really. Yeah, it's like the the whole is greater than the sum of, sum of its parts. Did you ever come from a parts based perspective or do you still see value in a parts focused lens?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I came from a personal training background. Well, prior to that, I kind of hit a bit of bodybuilding early days joined the military came out of there back into kind of that gym yeah pushing and pulling and yeah a lot of aesthetics and a lot of protein shakes yeah so I guess in those days then found personal training I had someone that I was lucky enough to say man as I was drifting pretty much into the same behaviors I was trying to escape to join the army with <laughs> <laughs> and found myself straight back into that. And the gym for me has always been kind of that. I guess it's the new fix for me. It was a space where I could go, where it's away from all the dangerous behaviour that I could easily kind of migrate towards at that age. And I found within personal training, after someone said yeah, you should go into this, you've got a great physique, a great understanding of it. Just have a look at it, and it, yeah, it's very quick for me to just go, wow, okay, I can't get this. And being able to deliver it and communicate it. And so, yeah, of course, I came from that background. But very quickly, I found myself in a personal training studio rather than a gym. And the personal training studio, she was very much, she was working with premiership footballers. Her name was Linda Mosley. And um, it was a lucky break for me. It was just there was no resistance machines, no weights. It was pretty much just working with this, right? And there were treadmills in there, so running became a part of that. But it was very much body weight. I didn't have that language at that time other than body weight exercises. I didn't really understand what what it meant to have your body weight in the right position to achieve the right muscular and tendon actions. I just thought it was body weight work, right? Oh, you just use your body weight. And um, we found that most of the clients were like 40 plus that had no interest in, of course, the bodybuilding culture that had become the saboteur, I feel, of personal training at one stage. And so you really had to understand your craft. It was very different. And I started, to, I was more and more attracted then to Pilates. And I suddenly found Pilates mat work. Pilates mat work found equipment-based Pilates. And then was then involved in a studio, one of the first kind of in London. And then set my own place up and then had practitioners, like six practitioners working with me. And. Yes, I guess, and that was very prescriptive. And even in that system, like 650 odd movements within that repertoire. But if you really understand it, you can see how it was shaped through Joseph Pilates' influences of dance, perhaps in the above above the New York City Ballet in those early days. But then underneath that, seeing ah, oh, there's gymnastics. Like he was a middleweight professional boxer who lost an eye in a fight. You know, and they had this amazing repertoire of movement. And when you really got to the understanding of the early stages, it was very much like Nicholas's Romanov's pose language of body weight. And said, ah, okay, it could all sort of tie together. So yeah, I, you know, I was into a lot of prescriptive work at that stage as well. So there was an element of muscle action, muscles on, muscles off. And you need that remedial element and level of it. You almost need that because that's what the way we operate. But there's the anatomical, physiological, and then you go above it, then you have gravity and then body weight. And then you kind of have that mind's perception even of how movement would be. So there's there's the, the Nicholas introduces that's the that hierarchical system really of, yes, we should train muscles and tendons, but we should also be really approaching this level so that these can understand their role within it. And we can understand our role within that, I guess.
0: It seems like probably a pivotal origination of your story into you just diving into like the whole world of, of, of movement and rewilding and doing all like the c- crazy barefoot marathon well not marathon like ultra super duper marathon stuff you started off with club feet
1: yeah I mean the story yeah it goes back to I think, like, my my parents it's very difficult because my parents are quite a bit traumatized by that experience so even getting things like photographs or conversation out of them you know, have you ever been, have anyone ever said to you, have you talked to your parents about birth? I think it's a really important process of kind of reconnecting oneself is to go into the birth story, right? So sitting down my parents, well, okay, we didn't really keep a lot of images at that time because we were, you know, we we're a bit traumatized by it. And But I was essentially the longest baby on record in Reading Hospital and it meant I'd taken on this weird adaptation where I'd managed to kind of wrap my feet underneath my armpits. And then... Bomb out out of the womb because there's not much room in there. It was nine pounds eleven ounces, it's a big baby, and I was born with what what is like an oversupinated foot, you know. So in images they would look they would look pretty much like that, you know. That's the big toe up there, and you're on the wedges or the sides of your feet. So that meant first twelve weeks in plaster. But every week having to have that change. So there's a change of plaster cast class every week because, of course, it'll cut the circulation off. You're growing quite rapidly at that stage. And then into and then into braces, like a boot with a metal bar that's braced across and they prize the feet open, do the bolts up, and it keeps opening and opening until it gets to what I, what they consider perhaps as the appropriate alignment for a child's feet to be in. My mum's story of it is that it was incredibly traumatic for her because every week having to go to see a doctor to have these plaster cast boots replaced. So that involves me screaming, her crying. And if you imagine like your first early years, like when you're operating in those kind of theta, delta, alpha waves that we can only dream or dream of achieving in deep meditation, you're in that as a baby and you're absorbing all that. And that's... Yeah. And we're very emotional as beings at that stage, right? What we absorb. So that's kind of not just having club feet, then it's having that amount of trauma around it, I guess, and the story that comes with that in later life. You know. Right. So clubfoot is considered idiopathic, meaning we don't know why the
0: heck it happens. But I wonder, in your experience through, have you utilized psychedelics? Is that a part? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So like through like shamanic work and kind of introspection and kind of just all the different more eastern realms that you've explored if that's an appropriate term for western anatomical allopathic medicine have you come up with any explanation or 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 reasoning or, or like source origin of why you came out with clubfoot or clubfeet
1: You know, again, it's like all these things uh, happen as for us in a sense, aren't they? When we really go down the rabbit hole, and you think, oh, this hasn't happened to me. It's happened for me. And if I hadn't gone through that, then it wouldn't have given me the scars to wound. And it's all a bit cliche, all that stuff. But for me, it came in a ceremony that I'd, so many ceremonies down the line. (laughs) i would basically managed to park all that whole story. So even my wife, Katerina, hadn't even heard of it. Never knew I was even born with club feet. i completely parked it, hadn't discussed it, hadn't even thought about it, even though I'd gone down this whole point of rewilding, rewilding being barefoot, already being a barefoot endurance athlete, not to the degree that I have been record-breaking recently. But I attended a ceremony. It was such a powerful one and incomplete darkness, ayahuasca ceremony. And my intention going in was just freedom. The shaman holding the ceremony—he's looking at me like as if to say, "Really? I mean, that's a—that's a big one to go in with. You sure you want to be hit with that? You know." And um, (laughs) it was as if, like the first, just it only had to touch my lips to be honest with you. I could just—it just—I just just knew it was going to be a big, a big, big ceremony. And the language that came in at the beginning was about freedom. Was this Aaron that it was? um, We're born. We're innately free, right? So we, we we're born free, completely free. Yet we're handed all this stuff, and it's like, here's something, here's another thing, here's another thing, here's all this materialism that suddenly keeps it drags us away from what it is to be free, the attachment to all things. And then as the conversation kind of has went down the rabbit hole with that, it, it suddenly came to me around attachment that it was it wasn't necessarily these things it was it was just attachment to it that was stealing our freedom so if you're handed something and but you are not attached to this thing then it's then it can't take your freedom right but it's we have this attachment to things so within the ceremony then all of a sudden this this very clear precise voice was And the thing is tony you know freedom just can be taken in a moment <coughs> bam, like that And this is in the early part of the ceremony, and then there was nothing, Aaron. I'm now sitting there, completely just, wow. Is that my? That it? You know, there's no medicine. What's going on? I was looking around in the. Well, not looking around. It's dark, right? But you know, you get a sense of what's going on in the room at that stage. And so, the second night that came along, I went back in, same intention, but it was. After I'd kind of managed to, te- to almost teleport around the room, I was shape-shifting and I'd become someone else over there. And I started to see the room from a different position until I end up sitting in this, the place of the shaman. He's like two seats away from me. I mean, it's like I like it. It's like the band seats like this and you have the audience and I'm kind of next, I'm two seats away from the shaman. And I, sit, I actually suddenly become him in the room, but I'm not him. I suddenly have this massive feathered headdress and I have these massive hands, like huge hands. And it's like all the people in the room suddenly appear in my hands and I just have them like this. and It's like, oh, incredible moment. And then deep inhales came and then suddenly the warrior came in. And I was like, boom, in the room, like solid, like my knuckles had hit the ground like this. Just really just solid and present in the room. And it stayed with me. I must have been there for an hour, just this, boom, presence. And then suddenly, out of nothing, my boots appeared. My boots with a brace suddenly disappeared. And it came with this story about this attachment. I have to let the shoes go. I must like lose the shoes in order to access what would be the warrior in me. That's what it felt like was the delivery of this message. And it sounds so woo-woo and so out there, but it was difference in when you do the medicine to the intellectual conversation of, oh, yeah, freedom, attachment, warrior energy. You are being, you are feet it's a feeling beyond this intellect. It's a, It's I like to call it like rewilding the heart and rewilding the gut. It kind of enables us to tap into that depth of being rather than the doing language of, oh, yeah, I'm doing freedom and I'm. Doing gratitude it's being it right it comes really deep within and so within that moment I came to me I was like I know what I need to do wow and so I, I arrived home from that weekend and I see Katerina and first of all you know a bit spangled and I need a bit of integration time but when you have like you know a few kids it's you don't really have so much of that integration how you might so um it was straight into ah oh, Katerina I know what I have to do it's like Come on, what is it? Well, you know, it's not the first ceremony you've come back from, and it's another idea that kind of that kind of understanding of it. And it was like I'm going to run from the southern point of the UK to the northern point of the UK mainland, which is known as Land's End to John Groats here. When Katarina's from Slovakia, so when I said Land's End, John O'Groats, I didn't really understand what that meant. So it's the length of the UK it's approximately 900 miles, but I'm not going to just run it. I'm going to run it barefoot. And I felt like I'm gonna do it in 30 days, in 30 miles for 30 consecutive days. And around about that time, on that specific date, I think with the kids, they were listening to Greta Thunberg. And Greta was talking about, I think it was the EU parliament discussing um, the bigger the platform, the more responsibility. And so it came in, it was this, wow, you know, I have this, I've been, it's a gift. I've been, I've been that I was born like this. That and running the Length UK is a huge gift. It's a huge platform that can be raised. And why? Because first of all, just running barefoot for 900 miles will raise socially extreme eyebrows. And with that, we can have this platform to raise awareness for some pretty important causes. And so that, that's how it just all weaved together. But it came in with that ceremony. It's like That was the, the accessing of what was the warrior within me. And it's not the first time it's come up because I had, when I hit 40, I did like a, I did a year of ceremonies before I hit 40. And that involved uh, San Pedro, which is like the uncle, which is great work that is profound again. And then with a friend of mine, Octavia, and it involved the Bufo, so this Sonoran Desert Toad. And that meant that it's no longer it was a it's the strongest kind of dmt experience known as 5 neo, and i'd already had a ceremony with him prior to that and this time around which ko'd me now, my friends that we were with and i you know i'm strong right and suddenly they saw me just go hit the deck and and i'm out you know and that's so deep, that medicine. It's like you just exit the physical vessel and you're off, and there's no you, there's no I, there's nothing. You just go into a space, and, and then suddenly things start to unravel within that, along with a, what feels like a lot of attachment. But on this next ceremony, there was no KO. It was just me, bam, standing, only by sitting on video, because again, I, I've exited Tony, the I element of Tony, and I'm in the, I guess, like the interdependence of all things and I'm doing some kind of hacker or something. I've got my tongue out, my eyes are rolled in the back of my head, and I suddenly started to access something within my spine, and I've got my hands on my knees again in this uh, pose. But you can almost see my shoulder blades going up, 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 up and down. It's insane. It's, I mean, to try and replicate it is, it's just not possible. I've had many attempts at it, just can't achieve it. And I came out of that, and my friend Octavo just went,
0: whoa. Warrior,
1: and it's just a very, it's a very different energy, and I think those are like again rites of passage, huge rites of passage for us. But again, it's it's kind of it leads into the next ceremony and the next ceremony. This unraveling and deconstructing, I guess, of what can be these these years of trauma, or it can be what perhaps is what's inherited and what we bring forth with us.
0: Yeah, I heard a thing inside every obese person is a healthy, thin person trying to get out. And I'm sure in like this day and age, people could receive that in all sorts of different ways, but just the general metaphor idea, you could change that up and say, behind every person that feels in any form of disease, there's a healthy, vibrant light that's trying to find its way out, but it's just kind of figuring its way through that maze and kind of getting through the trees and through the shadows and be able to like, and I think that sometimes in, in certain situations, you know, like maybe breath work or maybe it could be like a psychoactive type thing with Bufo or psilocybin or, or ayahuasca or whatever it may be, or maybe a darkness retreat or maybe a, a Vipassana meditation retreat. Just anything that, that acts as a, a pattern interrupt to take you out of that, that groove of your your ness like, you know, lowercase you Behind all of that, I think there there is this, almost like this this, like, Zebras Don't Get Ulcers is an interesting book from Robert Sapolsky. And, you know, when when a zebra gets attacked by a lion, it kind of goes through this cathartic, tremorous, like, release thing, if it it survives. You know, and if it dies, you know, just move on. But if it survives it, it releases that stress and that trauma. You know, it goes, finds a shady place, and it goes through its wiggles, and like, purges that out. And human beings, I feel like we're kind of backed up with years or, you know, depending upon your belief system, maybe lifetimes of those deeply instilled contractions. And if you have enough spaciousness, like perhaps you were experiencing that moment, I think the body has the ability to start to go into these really interesting, seems like a Haka or something. And it's like, it's, you're bumping into your innate healing capacity. And the body knows exactly what to do, but it's the process of arriving into that point and you're feeling safe enough to be in that point, or spaciousness enough, or guided, or whatever the term is. But it's like getting to that point, I think, is is nuclear.
1: Yeah, I, I think. I mean, there's certainly something said for all the rites of passage, right? I'm a big fan of Wim and his work, and you know, see the the ice bath as that modern day rite of passage for a lot of a lot of people going into that. It's enough as just to, as a as a reset of that stress response, because of course. With that zebra that goes through that experience, they're very much parasympathetic before that happens, right? And then it's a huge sympathetic response. That flight and flight will kick in. Well, fight, flight, freeze, fuck, feed, whatever we have now. I think it's five of them, isn't it? You know, imagine that. When we think about those, what are, they go, are going on right today? And then there's that the dismantling of that. And I think we had that. I think we had it through dance, play. Like, if you look at a tribal situation of dancing, it looks... From the, I guess from the early Europeans arriving on the shores of places, like these are like um, savages, you know, enraged, dancing around a fire. But we know that through acts of play we can help and we can find an imagination at least to imagine ourselves in a different position. And a lot of that is that we're stuck, right? So, yeah, we have years and years of trauma that can be compressing down the intellectual lid screws deeper and deeper, no, no, you shouldn't show your emotions, whatever the language is, especially towards the male population or had be. It's very different now, right? But if we don't have that opportunity or at least those behaviours that we can start to adopt that help us imagine us in different positions, then yeah, you can understand why there's mental health issues, depression, amelies, right? It's there, right? It's abundant. And if you understand kind of the behavior of kids and you can see in those really early years when you see i have four kids now and we unschool so there's been no none of that domesticated conversation language that can be inherited in a school system there's been some amazing studies but around kids in nature and how that looks right there's one with peter gray wrote free to learn fantastic book anyone that's an unschooler we recommend it and it, he asked like uh, so Aaron this is fantastic anyway he asked 10 leading anthropologists what does childhood look like in nature and they say they look at three independent tribes right three different geographic locations and they get the same kind of understanding of what it looks like and they say that well firstly the kids are the most well-adjusted rounded individuals they've ever met right <laughs> These savages, you know, that they're the most adjusted, well rounded individuals I've ever met. And they play from literally infancy through to the age of 16. And without any adult intervention, they learn everything they need to learn about their adult world. So you could say, really, they enter their adult world in a completely playful, imaginative way, right? So, what would adulthood be, right? Will it be a playful, imaginative experience, I imagine, right? Where you still play out what you've been playing out as a child. But when you unschool, you kind of get an understanding of that. and You see it, and you see it, and you experience it. But also going down that path is honoring developmental stages of that child. You know I was saying like in the first, it's like last trimester through to the age of seven, you're evolving as an emotional and an imaginative species, right? And then you hit your intellect, and then at like the age of nine, you should have everything you need for your adult world. Dopamine transmitters are off, and you start having to go and seek. <laughs> but up until that point, you have a huge abundance of dopamine that should keep you satisfied in your position, right? And you just play. You play with everything you have, but also you're a sponge to what's going on around you, right? So if, for instance, you have the natural tribe of adults that children are observing and playing out, What is it that then our children are observing and playing out? Because we're giving them all the gifts of when they walk through to their adult years, right? So, and if we don't give them an opportunity or a behavior to observe that is the zebra shaking out or the hacker or whatever it is, that they don't have a mechanism or an understanding of what it is to deal with trauma, right? And it's almost like, I feel this, we're in an amazing time right now that we have these huge gifts around us, that we can talk about stuff like this. You know, we're two guys. talk. Look where we can go with conversation. And the more and more we kind of go down the rabbit hole of, I think, expression and play, and deconstructing, dismantling, the more chance the younger generations will have of observing that and normalizing it.
0: I want to take a moment and discuss one of my favorite supplements. That supplement is magnesium. Listen up. If you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can possibly do is start getting enough magnesium. Don't waste money on fancy and unnecessary supplements and also don't normalize sleeping poorly. You deserve to get a good night's sleep regularly and literally all you need in order to do so is some magnesium. Also, I'd recommend blacking your room out, getting the temperature down around like 68, 69 degrees or so. Using some lavender oil is a nice thing. Meditation, reducing blue light before you go to bed. All those are very helpful as well. I recently had a online podcast listener message me after grabbing some Magnesium Breakthrough from BioOptimizers last week to say that on the first night of taking Magnesium Breakthrough, his deep sleep jumped up to two hours, which had been his highest reading so far from his Oura Ring. But please do not run to the store and buy the first Magnesium Supplement you find. Most Magnesium Supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms and Since they're not full spectrum, they won't fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. There's actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by how much better your sleep is and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners only, go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. That's m a g b r e a k t h r o u g h dot com slash align podcast. Use the align 10 code during checkout to save 10%. Again, that's an exclusive offer for my listeners only. You can go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast and use the align 10 code at checkout. I'd like to discuss another company that I find great value in. Referred to as element, I personally find that a low carb diet works best for my body. Although most people embarking on a low carb diet experience something generally referred to as the keto flu, which can cause fatigue, crankiness, decreased physical performance, cramping, and brain fog. It's not that pleasant. While it's a complex equation, electrolyte deficiency in folks adhering to a low carb diet is in large part driven by two key factors. When you make the switch to a low carb diet, you're probably Probably eliminating processed foods from your diet, which contain high amounts of sodium. Low-carb diets are diuretic in nature, meaning the kidneys excrete electrolytes at a higher rate. This is normal and not something to be worried about, but it's important to replace these electrolytes. All is not lost, though. By properly supplementing your electrolytes, both your keto flu and low energy can dramatically be reduced, if not avoided altogether. If supplementing your electrolytes seems right for you, I highly suggest Element. I use Element exclusively because all their ingredients are real and recognizable. Plus, all their products are always sugar-free, gluten-free, paleo, keto-friendly, and science-backed. Plus, it contains three times the electrolytes as your average sports drink, which also contains a bunch of sugar and bullshit. And guess what? You can try Element out for free. You can receive a free element sample pack, including eight packets of element, two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, and two raw unflavored by heading over to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's drink, D-R-I-N-K, the letters L-M-N-T.com slash align. This deal is not available on your regular website. So go to Drink, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash align. And you only pay five bucks for shipping and you get that sweet sampler pack to try out. I think for me and maybe a lot of men or people, there was like an abandoning of the child because of a sensation of, of pressure that you know you don't want to be weak or you don't want to be or I don't want to be weak I don't want to be vulnerable grow up fast and I put like this facade or this like guild of like muscles and grew my beard out and I mean I essentially kind of look like I do now so maybe it's I mean it's certain in in part it's still there for sure but now I'm just I guess like more in observation of it I'm like oh there that is there you go still still running strong (laughs) But I think that there's, as you're talking, almost like the story of Peter Pan came up, Robin Williams, where he gets, finally gets like deemed the pan, you know, and he's like, you can you fight and you can, you know, all the different things you do, it's like, you are the pan. Yeah. And that, I think that moment, it's like the, it comes into almost like the union maturation of the archetypes, you know, where it's not an abandonment of the immature aspect of self, it's just an evolution Into the mature, which is all encompassing, you know, so there's no point throughout the timeline that you kind of skipped and jumped because it was you didn't like that point or you know, repress it or push it aside or you were ashamed of it. It's like it's the same analogy as the body, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, so the whole of your history and your childhood and your present and. You know, your your warrior and your magician and your lover and, you know, all that to use union stuff like that is the pan. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you for me, at least, I think it's been I'm still in. the I don't think I'm the pan yet. I think I'm still in process. And maybe that belief system is a limitation. But it's kind of like a regathering of the past and kind of coming to any points historically where it's like, was there any point that I felt like I needed to kind of brush that part aside? you know, like a reintegration of all of my parts of my history allows for the healing in the present, I think is maybe what I'm trying to say.
1: Well, I think the first stage is just the recognition of it, isn't it? It's just, and also then comes the recognition, then comes with it, the responsibility of that change. For me, I think more than ever, it came with parenting, like it was an obvious one. As soon as the father comes in, you start to then analyze more of your own language because when we upregulate, say we're the we're the zebra in 90% of our time <laughs> that's being attacked rather than parasympathetic and haven't learned modalities to deal with the threat and learn to downregulate again, then we start to operate in those early years, right? To say that last trimester up until the age of seven, that stuff plays out in our adult skin. But the worst side of it, not the important stuff that we've learned to play and come into maturity not the cut-off point or the divorcing of that but almost the traumas of that or the worst stuff that's been stored and hasn't been dealt with within that subconscious and I think that the language that comes in like your inherited language suddenly oh a that's not me uh, oh my god it's like who's that and then suddenly oh I recognize my mum's voice in there I recognize my dad's voice in there And then, but this is from a point of compassion because what we also have to understand is again that you know each generation back there has been they were born into a norm. Peter Kahn, environmental generational amnesia. So it's like every generation that's born, they're born into a new norm. And so we could discuss that around. It could be if you were born into the war, that would be your norm, and so you're born into the emotional norm of that as well. So that's your first templates of that delta, alpha, theta frequency in meditation, you've absorbed the traumas of the war, right? And all the emotions around it. But you haven't just absorbed that, you've absorbed your parents' emotional reaction to that time because they're in your tribe of influence. And so that's my grandparents. And then my parents then being born into those households that probably have a lot of PTSD from those wars, and then you then you come in again, and then you look at my my, my dad had an engineering business, and so for him he was around machinery and noise all day long, and I was like yeah. an ADHD kid I can't sit here. I have to be out doing stuff, and so it noise to him. So that I, it was very much like why does why does he keep tapping? Why does he have to keep tapping? You know, and, you know can't he sit still? And if there was a noise in the house, like, why do we have to have that noise going? So we had stuff like that. So for me. With my kids, understanding what I do, but hadn't deconstructed that like when they first came. Do you know what I mean? So they came in, it was like, oh my God, I'm trying to concentrate here. The kids are driving me nuts. And there's la, 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 and all that stuff coming in, changing my perception of the room. So I don't know, I don't see kids playing anymore. I see a nuisance and a noise and, and this kid should be seen, not heard language come in. And so eventually having done the work it's now ah I'm triggered that's why I'm getting there oh, okay if I go out for a moment I do a bit of breath work and I come back in and then suddenly my perception of the room is one of the growth promoting state again I've kind of dealt with the like, attack of the lion or whatever it was and now I can come in as the authentic Papa Tony, not the upregulated stressed out mofo that's inherited all that language so I think parenting was an amazing tool for really helping me truly understand what the authentic Tony is. And I think almost with each child is almost like a new rite of passage in itself. My wife will say on a completely different level what her rite of passage involved because each one of those was her rite of passage through birth. And that postpartum, it lasts, you know, it stays with them forever. You know, they're never the same woman after a child, right? Because he can't be because you're no longer just one. Yeah. But for us, it's like, Again, that father energy is just quite powerful, I found, and just became just a very different being. You know, it's when people say, What is it you do? Well, firstly, I'm the father. I feel
0: like, as far as a lot of the conversation so far has been very metaphysical, which is, I think, great, but then bringing into tangible, like, actual information, I think that the metaphysical stuff, if a person can access those parts of themselves and find maybe deep layers of, of contraction or resistance or anything of the sort, it allows their their musculoskeletal system, their nervous system to relax at a deeper level than what perhaps they've never even realized they had access to. And then that opens up the potential for athleticism and mm-hmm. for success in, in really whatever capacity you are interested in. it's Relationship or business or deeper connection with source, God, you know, you want to run faster, longer, like all of it, if you can truly relax and allow your body to go into that rest, digest state and be able to heal, and also be able to move without tension in general, it's like getting a hybrid car, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, we used to be able to go 190 miles, now we go 450. It's like you're dramatically more efficient, because you didn't have these deep layers of contraction the whole time you were out for your job. And so I wonder with you with the barefoot run of 900 odd you say miles or kilometers miles yeah oh wow that's a lot so with that how did that come into play you being able to sustain that because i'd imagine you probably went through different layers if it wasn't just like pre-workout and like stretching your calves i'd imagine there was deeper layers to keeping your body going for that long
1: i think first it's there's a technique you know we were kind of pioneers of this barefoot movement, of the running movement, barefoot running movement. Not, I don't mean like the read the bone to run and take your shoes off and run. There's an actual template for how our posture should be. And and then once you get that right, then you use the appropriate joint actions, muscle actions and everything. And then once you have that, the physiology is kind of doing what nature intended it to do. So if you look at Dan Lieberman's work, it's like, you know, every part of our anatomy is shaped for running. So if you then start to think, well, if I get the appropriate shape and where can I see that will be in the tribes that run, right? And so that kind of gives us a template, or you can look at Nicholas Romanoff's work of the pose and see there's a specific posture that we go to. And then if we then go a bit deeper than his work and think, well, what about the feet? So there's this rewilding of even the feet, not just the running style, but rewild the feet, rewild the running style, And then bring in breathing mechanics like nasal breathing to become more efficient, but also find that your need to drink so much water or hydrate is minimized because what you lose 42% of water through vapor, through mouth breathing. So there's, there's lots in there. So there was the technique of running, there was being barefoot, becoming more efficient through the technique, but also becoming more efficient through breathing. And then there's just the understanding of the mileage. So I broke it down into like 10 mile stages and I pause, get some, I was very plant-based at that time, plant-based gains and go off again. And then I did the next 10 miles plant-based and then go off again. And then- Are you still plant-based? I'm kind of, I go with this 95%, 90% plant-based, but any meats are all wild. So um, I don't eat any domesticated farmed animals. I don't like that that understanding of it. I don't like the idea of the abattoir and the way that they're slaughtered all the antibiotics or the, I think you're consuming all of that when you're maybe consuming animal products is to think of the bigger picture and how possibly that would look and the closest you could get it to being in nature. And I think that it's not just about a slab of meat, it's about the whole offering of what that is. And I think it's much more aligned with how things would be again in nature and I have friends that have estates here and, and they have rewilding projects. And again, they have game, gamekeepers that look after the land and they're in a relationship with the animals on the land. And if they don't look at the numbers on the land, then it wreaks havoc on the whole biodiversity. So it helps, I guess, interact at that level. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. So then with the run, it there was various stages along the way because you're dealing with the recovery is very much then sleep, cold immersion, Breath work, of course. I was with my family as well, so I was on the road with my family every day, changing locations. And then there was one particular point, Aaron, where it went beyond the physical because I was running across a stream and a rock moved, and I gave myself an upper ankle sprain. Mm. And it's a terrible one—the upper ankle sprain. It's as if like someone's grabbing and a sharp instrument and just jabbing it in the right in the tib anterior tendon, that kind of area, and you feel like your shin's going to blow up and even just lifting your foot from the floor triggers that sensation. Putting your foot down triggers that sensation. So it's immediately after that, and I realized, oh, no, it's like day 26 of 30. <laughs> I'm right at the end of this event. Oh, no, the whole thing could be over in this moment. So I, I walk for a bit, and I walk for half an hour, and it's, no, it's too painful. I run for half an hour. Now back to walking. And playing with it, trying to tweak the technique as I was going to minimize the loading effort or the pain at least, you know, and then tuning in a bit and out of it and breathing and getting into almost like a meditation with it. Parking it, I guess, in a way, is that the best? But until I had to get my support guy come out, James, amazing guy over in Ireland, James Joyce, and he picked me up, took me back to our location where we were staying And I arrive and my family are all there looking at me as I say, oh, this doesn't look good as I'm kind of hobbling in the room. And they just gave me the space I needed. So it involved just sobbing to start with. Just all the 26 days, I guess, I managed to dump out in that moment anything that was there. I did the zebra and just let it all out in that moment. Days and days of this stored up. Not just 26 days of running. We're talking like a year in preparation planning an event. That's what people maybe a bit disconnected when you're doing that. There's a lot to organize around it and the training that goes in prior to that. And then just had to just knuckle down on the healing process. And it started, I took day 27 off and um, everyone left me alone for the day. And I was getting lots of amazing messages that would come in, you know, and great support, of course, which helped feed that need, that sobbing, the crying that comes with that kind of level of trauma and healing. And then I just went, flipped the switch. I did a Bruce Lipton model on it where I was kind of understood that, you know, we're this petri dish of cells that can understand growth or protection. And that might be the toxic environment or it might be the perception of the environment. And my perception at that point was very much the victim. The victim was, oh my God, I'm on day 26, it could all be, be over. And I had to flip every bit within me into the perception of healing rather than the perception of being the victim. Mm. And that, again, meant that warrior, kind of magician, whatever it is, had to come into that moment. And I just had my head over, sitting over a bucket. And one bucket I had ice, and the other bucket I had hot water with apple cider in it. And I was just going from one to the other, to the other, to the other. That went on. Then I'd get down again, breath work. That would lead me into meditation, meditation, then into mobility. And I spent a day, like really smashing it, a day of doing deep work. And then the next day I ran 30 miles, the day after that I ran 47 miles, and the day after that, the final day, I ran 57 miles, like the longest distance, almost twice the distance on the final day. Still with an upper ankle sprain, but just the mind, once you flip the switch, I guess. Amazing. Amazing
0: want to take a quick moment and discuss a new beverage that I've been finding to be quite delicious and supportive for my health. Uh, If you drink too much coffee, which I am guilty of on occasion, or you experience negative effects from coffee, I highly recommend trying out Hone Blends. This is a blend of ceremonial grade matcha, USDA organic cordyceps, and methylated vitamin B12 and B6 that not only bring you the same energy as coffee, but the energy is also longer-lasting. I'm a huge fan of cordyceps as it greatly helps to increase my athletic performance, enhancing my stamina, energy, and endurance, but also has other amazing health benefits. It's a great source of prebiotics for improving gut health and reducing inflammation. It protects against free radicals, helping to prevent signs of aging, and is a great source of collagen, helping with skin, bones, and joints, and it also helps reduce anxiety, which I know we all could use. And matcha contains the amino acid L theanine, which is used in Western medicine to reduce anxiety and treat depression. It also stimulates alpha waves in your brain, promoting an attentive and alert disposition while calming your nerves and stress. My favorite way to drink Hone Blends is by mixing it with some hot water and full fat coconut milk for a delicious matcha latte. I'll typically drink this in place of a second cup of coffee and have found my energy levels to be higher than ever before. You can get longer lasting energy plus reduce your stress and anxiety with Hone Blends now by heading over to honeblends.com and use the code ALINE for 30% off of your purchase at checkout. I hope you guys absolutely devour it and enjoy it. Once again, go over to H-O-N-E blends, B-L-E-N-D-S dot com and use a line code for 30% off. All right, here we go. Back to the podcast with Tony Riddle. The reason that the body shuts down the nervous system or creates bracing or anything is because it doesn't trust you in that (laughs) moment. You know, and so if you take the spine out of a stacked neutral position while you're trying to deadlift, your body will dump power or shut your nervous system down because it's like I don't trust this position. And so I wonder within some of those. Like I had Sanjay. Well, have you ever met Sanjay before?
1: No,
0: I haven't he's great he did a documentary called 3100 i think it's like run and become he's great he's one of my my preferred humans he's just got an amazing heart and great storyteller and he's brilliant in a lot of ways but within that there's a lot of stories like that you know pushing through what seems to be absolute disaster and then the other side being transcendence which is like the what that you know what the documentary is called and what the race is called and i think a lot of that perhaps is that, you know, the mind will shut you down based off of belief systems. And sometimes they're really valuable, because it really does protect you. And then sometimes it's like, well, what is this? Where is this story become actually just a limitation? And only that. And it's that negotiation that it's like, I think that that's the difference between probably, you know, highly successful people and people that Stop, and then there's also the case of highly successful people in quotations that also blow themselves out. So it's like I think we can go much further than we think. Comma, you can also really fucking hurt yourself. Yeah, so there's I, that, I that say,
1: liminal space there. <laughs> I, yeah, and I think the closer we can take things to what would be the natural norm, the more successful we would be. You know, if we look at running, for instance, you know, we've gone down this path with running with injury rates that are like, what, 70 to 80% of runners giving up through injury. That's the American College of Sports Medicine. And it just so happened it correlates with 1969 with, with footwear that, you know, suddenly became compromising because it had rubber that dumbed down certain impact, transient impact forces that would trigger the mind to be able to change shape to deal with the forces. And so we then look at knee problems, lower back problems that can come in through running, right? And then, so that's even running. And then we could look at, well, what does sleep look like? What does sunlight look like? What are all these? What are all these natural needs look like? Yeah. And look to nature again for examples of them that would lead. I guess we could go down the path of what Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And establish that what was that 1943. And, you know, there's certain fundamental needs there and some are needs for survival and some are thriving needs and you have to get your most basic survival needs met to be able to reach the next tiers and eventually end up as a self-actualized being, right? But if we looked at that model, let's let's put one of the most fundamental needs in there, like food, right? So food is like a really fundamental need in there. And we say, okay, how does that look then in 1943 versus today? even and who's getting their food need met on that pyramid and then well let's let's really do a number on it and let's go all the way to nature and look at oh how does it look in nature about the food need right so we could say moving through a landscape exposed to the landscape grounded bare feet microbiome connection with the soil through the feet is there a communication through us to the soil that the soil understands what to give the plants to give to us could be, and then having this sensory experience the whole time, terpenes, everything that's going on in that environment, rewiring the brain just with his sensorial being So that whole world of sensory genomics improving through that one experience, a uh, digestion being primed for it, the nutrients being primed for it, and then having this amazing connection with the food and the environment, versus you know, food being grown in degradated soil depleted pesticide fed soils long shelf life toxic packaging and then microwaved and then wolfed down while scrolling the gram whose food need is met right because it's and and when we look at it that way it's like wow it's no wonder it's so difficult to reach this self-actualized being if we're all scratching i call it like scratching away in the degraded soils looking for the most fundamental of all seeds right of being so if we look at movement for instance the more natural i can make that movement pattern the more i'm going to tick that box if you like so it could be you're into ground living right floor sitting you know it's like well what does that look like in nature again versus the human zoo and it's well The Hads is one of those great studies, 10 and a half hours sitting on the ground, different rest positions. They're just as sedentary as we are. It's not, they don't sit, they sit for 10 and a half hours. But every one of those rest positions is a position that will help feed their form so they can become an appropriate bipedal species, which then means that they're primed for movement. They don't divorce themselves from it. And there's a chemical metabolic cost for being on the ground. So it's not just about nourishing their movement patterns and keeping them mobile and strong. There's a chemical metabolic cost. So if we were to sit in a chair for 10 and a half hours, think of the systems that are off. Then when you stand up, Aaron, it's like there's a huge chemical metabolic cost because you've been off. And the mind goes, ah, I need to sit down again because this is too extreme. You know, so even for running, when people say, well, you must put yourself through some physical, well, yeah, most of it was ground living or hanging because they both will just rewild the posture. And then I, surely you run a lot of miles. It's yeah, but I also, I don't sit down. I ground live. So if I can squat for, you know, hours upon end, then it's the same body weight on my feet. It's still connected to my feet and my physiology is the same above it. It's very different to sitting down and being divorced from it. know so even that just there's a skill to that there's a and people don't see that as a skill for me it's like the refinement of your natural needs is probably the most fundamental thing for life successful life I think
0: the whole time I've been standing on this uh slant board nice knees over toes knees over toes right exactly people can get dogmatic in any direction if I recommend someone's knees stay behind their toes, you know, while they're deadlifting 300 pounds, we're like knees over toes, man. I'm like everything's variable. There's there's yeah. no you get in one tunnel. You're like no no no. Like every conversation's probably bigger than we think if we've read like a couple headlines of a thing. Like it's almost definitely bigger than the headline. Have you read my my book? I have it. Yeah, of course copy? I've read it, man. You sent it to me. Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. I wasn't sure if I sent it to you or not. I was there, I'm like you know, I'm like, like you're describing the alignment method. <laughs> Like I love not that it's my shit. I don't think that I said all I'm saying is just like be a human. Like I don't think that I wrote in there is like novel or new, it's all very obvious. But I love that you're mentioning just simple things of like hanging, you know, and spending time on the ground, like completely free. And I I think if we can integrate those subtle, just subtly integrate more effective movement into our daily lives, like almost looking at at our our workstation is like an opportunity for like a, like a full body massage in a way. So like during this conversation, I'm like doing work on my ankles and my knees. And I've got a little ball thing on the table. I've been like rolling out my forearms, you know, as we're having this conversation and it's like, it's costing me absolutely nothing. I get done with this. I essentially paid a yoga therapist to work with me for an hour. You know, I'm not like tooting my, my horn of like, I'm doing something great. I'm doing something very normal. I'm just subtly implementing what would naturally happen had you be naturally moving through nature into yeah. this domesticated life.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think
0: that people can go really far on the one side of the rewilding where it's like, okay, just no one's going to do that. Like if you live in an apartment high rise in New York, like you're probably not going to fall into that category of like, you know, moving out with the huts of people or something. But there is a there is a way that we can integrate those principles into our high-rise apartment situation.
1: We can't all live in nature, but it doesn't mean we can't live naturally. And it's exactly right. that: is to look at the indoor and outdoor environments. I I look to natural beings of the world to give an example of it, of course, because that's the appropriate natural template of it all. And then we say, right, how does that look like in the human? What does that look like in the human zoo? Right? How can I change my movement habits? How can I look at my sleep? Breath work, whatever it is. I mean, you could tick any of the boxes and put them in those natural needs, right? Even down to the way we communicate or have connection or community. And sleep's like a, a big one, isn't it? It's like a great one, but it's like most of the sleep studies we come across, Aaron, they're, they're, they're in the human zoo, right? And again, it's done, it's either in a laboratory or in the zoo. So it's, Does it look like in nature? There's a great one by um Professor Siegel, that's the University of California, and they look at three independent tribes. So you have the Hadza, you have the San, and there's another like agricultural tribe that are in Bolivia, and it involves 94 participants, and it's over 1165 days. And again, these are three tribes, three geographic locations, right? Completely different geographications. But what it gives us is they have the same templates for sleep. So it's not like, oh, it's different in this tribe and it's different in that tribe. These are three tribes that are living the way that we perhaps have evolved for 95% of our time, right? And they have the same things going on. Of course, there's the the sleep-wake cycles of it. So they're not all asleep at the same time. That's that's one thing that comes through this, is that it's not like they're smashing in eight hours. So for a lot of my... People that I see, and especially when you become a parent, it's like if you read the sleep studies, I'm surprised I'm even here today. If I don't reach eight hours, I have a sleep debt, and I will have obesity, diabetes, blood pressure—all these symptoms that will come in. And then when you look at it, you go, "Well, how's that possible?" Because I'm in—I'm in good shape, and I'm—I I'm, can go and do—I can go and break records at the moment. Not blow my own horn, but this wouldn't be possible, surely, if I had a sleep debt. And then you look at that model and you go, ah, uh aha, these guys are in incredible shape, by the way, these tribes, right? And they're they're in phenomenal shape, all under the BMI. They're all in amazing shape. They move well. Yes, there's mortality, but a lot of that is to do with infections. It's not to do with chronic disease. And if they survive till 60, 70, they're still in amazing shape and move just as well as the younger people within the tribe. So what is it they're doing? And so they break away and they look at the, they look at 33 members of the Hadza isolated. And they look at them for, I think they studied them for 200 hours. And the whole tribe, they're only ever asleep together for 18 minutes. So they're all doing this in their sleep-wake cycles. And they're tending to the fire, looking after the young, fixing tools, smoking, whatever they're doing. But it's in a sleep-wake cycle. So they reach the depths of sleep. And they have to always have a fire, so someone has to tend to that. Also, from a security benefit, would we all be here today if we all zonked out for eight hours? I mean, think of the predatory influences that would have been around at some stage. So what is it that's happening? And then you see it, you go, okay, so lighting. Lighting's that. They don't have the ability to create sunrise at sunset. doesn't happen, right? Can't switch a light on, in other words. Their temperature goes down, we know that. Then there's also the information they receive, like this thing at night. What information we're receiving? They have firelight, and wisdom, and humor, and romance being taught around the fire, which helps aid that parasympathetic state and the imagination brain. Because chances are, that's probably coming from the elders within that tribe. And the elders, you have, we all have an innate desire to learn, right? We have knowledge and desire, and we have a tribe of influence that encourage us to alter our perception of the world that enhances growth. And that all kind of happens around the fire versus this. We still have the innate knowledge, the desire to learn, but we have fear-based information that we're absorbing before sleep, which alters our perception of the world that shoves us into a state of protection before sleep. So they have that nuts stuff. We have that going on. They have the romantic firelight. And that can be the TV or the mobile. So that's the difference. So then we look at well, what's happening with lighting and the main regulatory systems like leptin, ghrelin, insulin, pancreas, is melatonin, right? And then we look at the melatonin studies and you go, ah, oh, okay, melatonin is responsible for all those three regulatory systems. So it's not, I need eight hours sleep. I just need to make sure my melatonin is in check. And then you go, okay. Where can I find those studies? And there's the credible one. I don't know if you've come across this, man, but it's, it's a study of a simulated work experience, like a warehouse experience. Someone working in bright light versus a dark sleep experiment versus someone working in the same brightly lit experience, but with blue blockers on, amber glasses that then give them the same firelight experience, biological darkness and they look at their melatonin urine samples, and this group nothing, this group yeah, abundant, and this group with the same experience of these, but blocking out all the blue spectrums, had just as much melatonin as group two. So that means, if I was a night shift worker, I don't need to be panicking right now. Yes, it's not gonna be great long-term, but I can mitigate a lot of this by actually bringing in some of these influences. you know. So just looking at nature again as an example, can help park a lot of the fear of not getting eight hours at least right there's some amazing stuff out there if you start to really go down that rabbit hole what does it what does it look like in nature versus where we are right now you know
0: yeah as you're talking i'm just so grateful that you exist where should people go if they want to learn more about you or your experience
1: or yeah so you can find me at tonyriddle.com where i've got like there's Online tutorials there. There's an online community that's there called the Nat Life Tribe. Also, my Instagram, at the Natural Lifestylist.
0: As you're talking, the, the quote from I think it was Winston Churchill, I actually put it in my book First, we build our homes and then our, our homes form us, or first, we form our homes, then our homes form us, whatever some paraphrased version of that. But you build your house, you know, and then you're like, cool, this is great. You have the vision. And then eventually that vision starts to, you know, contour and, you know, form you into it. And I think it's an interesting thing. Like that's what makes humans so impressive is our, our capacity for adaptation. And that includes adapting to like being in a cubicle and slamming McDonald's cheeseburgers all day. Like your body figures it out. It's just going to look mm-hmm. a little different. You know, so it's a kind of it's like choose your adventure. Like no, no one is wrong or right. It's just acknowledge that you have far more power than you than you perhaps even believe in the moment. You know, choose the vision and then proceed forth. It's up to the individual. I don't have any, you know, judgment for one being better or worse than the other. It's just just know that you have the choice. That's the major thing, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's definitely within all of us is this ability to change, be the change. But ultimately just using that evolutionary model of thinking. We're the descendants of some pretty amazing ancestors, right? Mm. That's how we're here. We're here today because they have traversed the most incredible environments and hostile environments for us to be here today. That's in our DNA, right? We literally we are the most powerful being, right? When we really let go and connect with it, and so use that Bruce Lipton model of flipping your perception, you know. Of, you know we we are the most incredible powerful beings. We are innately wild connected and empowered, right? For anyone that has kids, remember that's innately you know connected, wild, empowered beings. And for your kids, try and preserve that. <laughs> yeah.
0: That was the same advice or recommendation or wisdom from Neil Strauss when we did an interview like a couple of years ago. That was like I was asking about fatherhood, you know, and him raising. his son's called seven. And that was essentially exactly it. It's like preserving that innate intelligence and wisdom and creativity and play and, like, kind of like a hunter gatherer kind of scenario of, of, of you know, carrying around the ember of that fire. Like, don't let
1: the fire go out. Yeah. And I think, you know, <laughs> what I'm saying, it's an observation. So, Aaron, it's an observation, right? I think with this skin, this spiritual skin, we, we have this responsibility, right? to give ourselves a present best in this moment because all those beings under the age of seven that are recording the information in those first early years are observing us, right? It's our behavior. So whether you're a papa, a mother, whatever you consider yourself to be, just an individual, anyone that has, any adult has children observing. You don't have to be the papa, the mother, or whatever you consider yourself to be. Mm. Is to understand that every child is observing us mm. and that will become the template for their future, perhaps, you know. Mm. So it's really just, I guess, taking on that responsibility of being the change, not, you know, in the um, cliche sense, but really understanding that every decision we're making is being observed somehow, right?
0: Well, I look forward to being in person. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to your book whenever that comes out. All right, over and out hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. If you did, feel free to share it on the internets. Instagram is a likely place. If you do, you can tag me at Align Podcast, A-L-I-G-N Podcast. And you can also tag Tony Riddle at The Natural Life Stylist. And there's a good chance we will reshare your post or your story or whatever. Yeah, Tony is such a authentic, intelligent, inspiring human being. So I'm so grateful to get to bring conversations like that to y'all. All right. That is it. That is all. I hope you devour your day. I hope you have an excellent week and I look forward to uh, conversating in your ear holes next week.